studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you joining us on the program this month. And if you'd like to get a question on the program, all you need to do is email that to ask at WBAA.org or tweet it at WBAA News on Twitter. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Uh, likewise, is Happy New Year so far. Yeah, uh, not not a lot has happened, and and some part of that uh, is I think because we've got this interesting situation in Washington, which is affecting so many things. Higher education among them. Have you noticed any specific impacts of the partial government shutdown on Purdue yet? Very few so far, but if it goes on much longer, I think it'll be more and more pronounced. I, I, you know, clearly it's. A, uh, unfortunate situation, and um, we have uh, 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 research uh, uh, checks that aren't coming. Uh, we have, uh, I'm sure, there are lots of uh, 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 clearances of of new projects that we or approvals of new projects that uh, we might have received by now that we're not. So uh, let's hope they settle up pretty soon. The longer it goes, the worse it'll be. Do you have, to your knowledge, any government, federal government employees on campus? I know sometimes that universities will uh, employ federal contractors or things like that. Are you aware of any of those people who might be either working without pay or have been furloughed uh, and, and are not able to work by law at the moment? I don't know of any. It's not impossible. We certainly at, at any one time have a lot of uh, guests. We have guest faculty. Um, we have... Um, uh, people from the military, uh, for example, and others who come here and study. Uh, and so there, there may well be p- individuals who are being personally affected right now. I hope not too many. And again, I, I hope that uh, Washington will get its act together and get this behind us all. On to other things. Uh, you spoke recently at the memorial for student Tyler Trent, who passed away New Year's Day after a long battle with cancer. You, in your, your speech, uh, were, were clearly emotional about the whole thing and you equated Tyler Trent to other larger than life Purdue figures in terms of what he did for the school how did you how did you assess as you were thinking about it his relative importance to Purdue's 150 years it was almost uncanny to me um, uh, the way in which I thought uh, Tyler personified characteristics that have been and I hope will always be associated with our university. So, of course, uh, the way in which uh, his story captivated people and and uh, became very suddenly and then um, for, for quite a period of time a, a national uh, story brought enormous attention uh, to Purdue that we wouldn't have had otherwise. But it wasn't just that. Um, I like to think of Purdue as a as a as a, a place where serious uh, students are challenged and and uh, where we uh, offer a rigorous education. Just think about our mascot uh, and our label, boilermakers, and so forth. It all connotes a strength in various forms, and so uh, Tyler's. Uh, particular notoriety, I thought, reflected, as he said frequently, uh, characteristics that we associate with Boilermakers. You know, and remember, uh, when asked about him, some of the, our players, David Blau, they said, what, is, what about this young man? And David said, well, he's a Boilermaker. Uh, 
and um, so um, I thought it was really providential in a way that um, that he that uh, he came along was noticed. I made the point in my what three minutes of remarks that night that uh, he didn't intend this. He did nothing to draw attention to himself. He camped out outside a ticket office, and our coach noticed him. And then things took on a life of their own. And, um, uh, you know, uh, that's why uh, I think this will linger on. Obviously, the overlap with the Ohio State game, and uh, which, um, because of what happened, was going to be a one of the biggest sports stories of the year, clearly the biggest upset in the whole college football season. Um, and consequential kept him probably out of the out of the uh, final four tournament. Um, but um, I, I, I just think that uh, all of that means that that his story really won't be forgotten and because it uh, it says so much about the character of this place as well as of that outstanding young man. In the wake of his passing, it caused me to wonder whether anybody at Purdue had begun to study the rare form of cancer that took his life. Are you aware of anybody doing research like that? Well, we have, of course, one of the uh, Na- uh, National Cancer Institute uh, cancer centers on this campus. A lot of people don't know uh, that uh, some of the most advanced cancer research anywhere happens here. Uh, even though we don't have a medical school and clinical work has to go on at partner institutions. Um, and I think the answer to your question is yes, because that's a pretty uh, uh, wide-ranging um, research program over there. As you may know, uh, one of the ways in which Tyler will be memorialized is through uh, donations to that uh, uh, center, which have been uh, very substantial um, Uh, since uh, his story became widely known. I want to spend a few minutes talking about uh, your open letter to campus, which you do on an annual basis. And we've talked on this show, and you've spent time talking elsewhere, too, about the concept of grit, which you mention again in the letter. Uh, It's a term that's being spoken about more and more in education circles these days, relates to a student's resilience or stick-to-itiveness. We got a couple of Twitter comments that I wanted to uh, direct to you because they mention you. And one of them um, says, I enjoyed the long, meandering discussion about how young people are entitled, whiny, and weak. Mitch Daniels seems unbothered with questions about whether it takes grit to ask for help, for example, or to raise issues of diversity and inclusion in hostile public spaces. And I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that. Well, I didn't use any of those words or anything close to them. It's a very predictable response. The letter anticipates it. I don't need any instruction from anybody about the reality of mental illness. I spent years in the business that did more to destigmatize it, Eli Lilly and company, uh, and to broaden uh, treatment for it uh, than probably any other single uh, enterprise has with the introduction of Prozac and other psychotropic uh, medications that followed that. Uh, no, um, uh, I quite clearly said, I went to great lengths to say that we have and will uh, provide more and more resources for those who seek them. But, um, uh, you know, I do not want students leaving here, if we can do anything to help them, um, uh, believing that um, they can't cope 
with the uh, realities of life and the, and the special um, adversities that will come with leadership, which is what we uh, hope that our, our students will demonstrate. So um, I fully anticipated a very small minority of people would choose to misread what I said, and obviously one person at least did. But um, I'm hardly the first to notice that we do have a, an, a, an eruption of apparent emotional fragility on the part of young people who, after all, are living in the most fortunate circumstances in human history. We are wealthier than we've ever been. We are safer than we've ever been. And so um, we, while we make ample provision for the very real problems that many of them are facing, I think we also have to look for ways to uh, help them build, um, uh, as people say, resilience uh, in these younger years. And we're in default if we don't uh, uh, try to do that. And this is being very widely written about and said by others. I'm hardly breaking new ground here. Is it possible that, that universities are kind of in the middle of a change in the culture where for maybe the first time it's been okay seen as acceptable to to ask for help i mean you think about i was thinking about some of the cultural icons that we've had in this country people like you know john henry and rosie the riveter these big burly personages who seem to say i'm going to get through whatever's in front of me thank you very much i'm going to get it done don't worry about me is the university part of this larger idea of it's all right to to ask for help, no matter how big or how small the problem, and that's something you guys are having to kind of wrestle with. Well, that's exactly the signal that's being sent all over uh, the society these days, and up to a point, it's 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 perfectly appropriate and healthy. But um, uh, I think that there are people who are encouraging too therapeutic an approach to life, and uh, once again, don't take it from me. Go study the literature, many of the studies that are being done now, that uh, do suggest that particularly uh, young people, for various reasons, um, are being encouraged to rush to an adult at the first sign of trouble, that they haven't, and, and, and they're, that they haven't uh, uh, played, they haven't uh, uh, undertaken the, uh, the kind of activities in their younger days that might help them be a little better at solving their own problems. And um, so, uh, you know, social media may play a part in this, as it clearly is having effects we don't understand in a, across society. And um, uh, all I know and all I'm saying is that um, we'll help every student here who needs it or thinks they do. But we also, we won't stop there. We also want to find ways to uh, help them um, uh, build their own uh, self-regard uh, uh, and self-confidence, um, because when they leave here, we want them to do great things. Let me ask and, you about that for a second. I, I wondered if any um, training had been done or talked about for professors, because obviously you're going to have to give bad grades to students every now and again, and that's never an easy thing to deal with. But that's the kind of thing that helps build resilience and, and make you come back from adversity. So have 
there been any trainings, to your knowledge, where professors are being taught to deal with the students who are coming to them without characterizing them in any way, but the, the students who are in the classes today, how do you deal with giving them a bad grade versus how these same professors, many of whom have been here 20 or 30 years, were dealing with a couple of generations ago with that same scenario? Great questions. Exactly what our provost and his folks are looking at. Um, are there ways uh, in which, uh, as we teach, or in other respects, uh, as we, uh, um, uh, the, the staff who are in touch with our students uh, in their residence halls, in their their academic advisors, uh, what can what might any of these uh, groups of people do to um, uh, enhance the the resilience uh, of our students while they're uh, with us. And uh, uh, we don't pretend, I don't certainly, to know exactly what the answers are, but the idea, it, it is an appealing notion, uh, as you ask uh, that question, that uh, there ought to be things we can do and all of us might have a role to play. You mentioned also in your letter the idea of what you call concierge services, and that is what some uh, other institutions call them. You mentioned New Mexico State is another large school that's doing this. The idea being that they will help students do their laundry and take care of other uh, essential tasks for them. And um, you have talked on this program and other places about not adding amenities so much as you're adding academic resources and things like that. At the same time, allow me to play devil's advocate for just a second, these same students are maybe looking for different things out of their colleges, and uh, you as an academic institution are trying to lure some of the same talented young people as New Mexico State or others are doing. How are you balancing that idea of the bright, shiny object versus what you're doing, which is trying to keep costs low. You've spent so much time and effort on that. Um, it's all part of the same sort of competition for students, isn't it? Sure it is. And for the moment, we're doing well in that competition. I happen to think there's uh, plenty of room for a school that says, first of all, we're going to keep your costs down. We're not going to spend money on um, on um, uh, water parks and and uh, concierge services and so forth. But, you know, let's go back to our previous conversation. Um, one thing that one would hope the residential college experience does is, is prepare students or give them a halfway house on the way to adulthood where they're really going to be responsible for their own lives in every respect. Um, Stan, uh, one of my favorite uh, features here at Purdue, I've said it I said it as recently as with a bunch of students last night, I wish we had more co-op housing than we're able to accommodate. And cooperative housing, of course, is where a limited number, and that's why we can only have so many of them, uh, 20, 30, in the biggest case I can think of, a little over 50 women or men live together in a, in a house and keep costs down for themselves by doing all their own cooking, a lot of their routine maintenance, and so forth. And um, I just love that model. And when I'm uh, visiting one of those uh, houses, I've noticed, yes, of course, they say this is a, a, a way they can economize and, and um, uh, move through Purdue uh, less expensively. But always they'll mention the little things they learn. I, I've, I've had you know young women tell me, uh, uh, I learned to caulk a, a, a bathtub. 
Um, you know, uh, I learned how to uh, – I had to order food and organize meals for 30 girls for a month. I'd never done something uh, quite like that. You know, I'll tell you what, there's, there, those are young women and men who are uh, building some uh, uh, resilience and preparation for what comes next. And so um, I just uh, – uh, I, I, I think both those elements – are are reasons that uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, I believe we can play a role. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Send your questions to us via email. That address, ask at wbaa.org. Tweet your questions also at WBAA News on Twitter. So this discussion kind of dovetails with an Aspen Institute panel on which you recently sat along with Bob Boehning, who's the head of the House Education Committee here in the state. And you and the other panelists were talking about this report, which is called From a Nation at Risk to a Nation at Hope. And I'm going to quote a sentence from the opening paragraph. It says, the promotion of social, emotional and academic learning is not a shifting educational fad. It's the substance of education itself. It is not a distraction from the, quote, real work, end quote, of math and English instruction. It is how instruction can succeed. Um, that seems to say that there's there's some amount of change that's going to need to happen, uh, and there's going to have to be a balance, I would think, between how much the institutions change and how much the students change. How are you viewing the next 5, 10, 20 years in terms of a statement like that that says, look, we're going to have to rethink a little bit how we're doing all of this? Mm-hmm. Oh, the Aspen Institute, and I've been part of um, other uh, commissions that they and like organizations have have done. I was not part of this when I was invited to come in and comment on their report. And so I read it, and uh, uh, some very uh, um, talented and idealistic people put it together. And I I think in general they're making a a point that's uh, very valid, um, which basically is – that um, education of our young people um, ne- must now try to comprise not only standard academic growth, but so-called social and emotional uh, growth too. Why? Well, you know, one reason to have a lot of sympathy for the, sc- for the schools of this country and the people who teach in them is that they are being presented with problems that weren't there 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. Students then may have come in with far fewer um, material advantages than today. Um, but um, they, they arrived with uh, some um, uh, sense of self-worth that they got at home, in the neighborhood, at church, and in a society where um, um, a huge percentage of our young people do not grow up in an intact home. Um, We've known for decades that that would be a very serious disadvantage to them in life, um, on, at least uh, um, on the average. And so the schools and the school and the system—that's what this report is saying—has got to really try to fill that that vacuum, and um, in in the lives of many of these young people. And I wish them all the luck in the world. I think it's a very daunting assignment. And the other panelists and the members of the commission. We're, I think, sober-minded about how hard it would be to change the, this all the way uh, across such a, a large system. But uh, uh, they've done a great – I thought they did a good service by raising these issues. And 
Um, I thought their suggested approaches, while difficult, incredibly difficult to implement, were sensible. If there has been a change in the student who's in college today, it seems like today's college students are going to be the ones who are driving what college looks like in 10, 20 years, because not too long from now, they themselves are going to be parents. They're going to be helping their kids decide what colleges to go to, and they're going to remember their own collegiate experiences wherever they happened to go. How do you take today's Boilermakers and do you think imbue in them a sense that this university is one where they're going to want to send their kids who may have a totally different outlook on life 20 years from now? I think it'll have to do with the success that they are, that is to say, today's graduates have in life. Um, I get letters. I was looking at some more yesterday, almost every day, from grateful boilermakers. That is, people who look back years later and conclude that these years were really important to them in preparing them for success in whatever life brought them. I think that's more than anything, more than the, the, the warm memories or the fun that you had while you're here. I think that, that that's what will keep, I hope and trust, um, a future uh, children of, of uh, today's Boilermakers uh, interested in, in Purdue. But um, uh, we talk all the time about trying to provide as much value as we can here. The highest quality, which to me absolutely encompasses the the uh, encouragement of uh, hard study and rigorous preparation, um, and, and uh, at an affordable price. And if we keep doing that, I think they'll keep young people whose parents went here and some who didn't will come keep coming. You mentioned the societal advantages, the uh, relative safety and wealth and things like that that students enjoy today that their forebears may not have. And this goes to a recent Washington Post editorial you wrote. You you cite a number of examples of things in society getting better, even though people seem to be focusing on the negative. And you reference Steven Pinker, who was on campus not long ago, talking about this. And your thesis and his is is broadly correct. Things, uh, if you look at the, the broad scope of things, clearly getting better over time. But let me ask you the other side of it. Is there reason, though, that being the case especially, to focus on the stuff that's still wrong? For instance, how many times have we heard people say, we're in a post-racial society, racism is not what it once was, things like that, and yet it keeps coming back to the fore. There are some of these really intractable problems that people now, maybe because so much of their other life is good, they have more opportunity to focus on. Is it worth thinking about a renewed focus on some of these really intractable problems? What what uh, Steven Pinker, one of our most eminent scholars and, and authors, uh, uh, is saying in in his book, and as I pointed out, it has to be. It, it's a very human tendency to uh, accentuate the negative, to to uh, turn around the old song title. Uh, and uh, he by and, and he's a psychologist. One of the most interesting parts of the book, to me, as I wrote, is is not necessarily all the misconceptions we have, where we tend to uh, dwell on and overestimate the negatives. Um, it's why, and he he explains to the layperson some of the psychological, psych, uh, the empirically proven psychological um, uh, 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 phenomena through which uh, we tend to overestimate 
the likelihood and the severity of our downsides. Look, of course we should always work on what's not as good as it ought to be. That's what where progress comes from. We're never going to be satisfied, let's hope, as a as a species or as a nation. Um, and um, you know, those of us who spend some time in public service, you better go in there because you see things that aren't right aren't, or aren't optimal, and you want to make them better. Uh, and uh, so, of course, but um, he is simply pointing out with absolutely voluminous slam dunk data that um, it's better than mo- than many people believe, and many in many respects. And his argument is not that we should rest on our oars and declare victory. Not at all. He's saying, how did we get here? How is it that we've made these massive improvements in in every realm of, of human life? And his is an argument for continuing to apply science and, uh, and, uh, and, and humanism uh, to our, our, our remaining problems. That's how we're going to get better. That's, that's what the book's about. And uh, um, I, uh, I simply wanted to draw it to more, more people's attention and pay tribute to him. It strikes me that this, this conversation we've had today is a lot about balancing a couple of different sides of equations. Uh, there are going to be people who say, we've, we've overlooked the environment, we've overlooked things like racism to be able to zoom ahead as far as as fast as the United States has in in recorded history few countries have advanced as fast in as short a time as the US has certainly uh, let me ask the other side of this which is if you're speaking of 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 numbers and I'll point out here that I am not a mathematician I am not a scientist in any way shape or form but because things have gotten better is it likely that we have to be worried about backsliding a little bit because as you get closer and closer to the top of something there's more there's more space behind you potentially than there is in front of you and for instance we're seeing that in the last couple of years lifespans are going down for the first time in recorded memory so uh, do we have to be careful about the idea of going the way we've been going and and worry a little bit more about not backsliding not going back to where we were Um, I guess I know what you're asking here, but the I think the there's always, of course, the possibility of regressing. Um, it's a mistake to think that human history is a straight line upward. Um, but it'll be it would be mistakes of human judgment or culture that that set that set us back. I mean, lifespans haven't flattened uh, in uh, anywhere because. We're not better at healthcare. We're better than we've ever been with new inventions all the time. It's because of cultural phenomena. In this case, in in this country, opioids and and uh, and violence among young, uh, too many young uh, people in certain environments. In Russia, drunkenness. But, you know, everywhere else, it's getting better, better, better all the time. And in, and in the in the populations that are not making unwise decisions in those countries, it's also getting better. So. Um, uh, I think this is what uh, Dr. Pinker is is reminding us. If we if we apply uh, science and reason uh, and, and and constantly uh, uh, ask how can we increase human flourishing um, in ways that are that are uh, uh, scientifically and 
and empirically justified, uh, there's every reason to continue expect uh, continued improvement. Well, the, these discussions are never a straight line either, but uh, always fun, always enjoyable, and uh, thanks for your time. We've run out of it, but uh, we'll plan on doing it again next month. See you then. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Remember, at any time you like, anytime a question occurs to you, email that to ask at wbaa.org. Tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter as well. And remember to thank your local public radio station for running this program as well, all of which can be archived at WBAA.org. Just find the page for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.